and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm filled with yuletide glee to welcome Robert K. Elder to the program today. Rob is a veteran photographer, journalist, author, and podcaster. Today we'll be talking about his latest book, Christmas with Elvis, the official guide to the holidays from the king of rock and roll, which is published by Running Press. Well, Rob, how did you get the assignment to write about Elvis and Christmas? Well, a couple different ways. I had previously written a book about music for Running Press called The Mixtape of My Life. It was basically a how-to on how to tell your life story through your music collection. And my editor and my agent both knew that I had a previous life as a rock and roll journalist and and more specifically a rock and roll photographer. And I had just given all of my negatives to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It sort of came up like, hey, are you an Elvis fan? Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, are you a Christmas fan? I'm like, yeah, totally. How about you write a book about Elvis and Christmas? And so I thought about it for not that long. And I thought about the prospect of telling my mother, whose two favorite things are Elvis and Christmas, possibly in that order, and decided I could not say no. So is this officially sanctioned by EPE? Yeah, yeah. I worked with the Elvis Presley estate. And one of the reasons I signed on to do it was I love archives. I was a student archivist for Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. And wherever I go, I always love archives. I've done a couple books about um, Ernest Hemingway. So I, I, I've spent a lot of time in his archives. So the prospect of getting to go through the Elvis archives uh, was just great. And then, of course, I signed the contract and the Graceland archives shut down during COVID. We were still able to, to make it work, but you know the thing I wanted to do most, I didn't quite get to do. So how did you go about doing the rest of the research if you couldn't get down to the archives? I have most of the Elvis books available already. So you know I knew a lot about Elvis. I had been a lifelong fan. So I had most of the uh, research material available. And then I worked through, you know, sort of inner library alone. And, and then I, you know, interviewed some fellow Elvis researchers who put me in uh, the right direction. And, you know, like uh, folks like uh, Peter Goralnik, who is, you know, the, the king of, of Elvis biographers. And then there's a guy named Ken Sharp, who was amazing. He wrote this book called Writing for the King that was really helpful in helping me tell the backstories to all of his holiday music. Because, you know, Elvis, even though his Christmas records, he only really recorded two of them, but they've been sort of, you know, remixed and repackaged over and over and over. But what I wanted to do, what I set out to do was tell to tell the story behind the writing or recording of every single one of those songs. And, and that's what I was able to do, you know, thanks to some of this scholarship. And it's appropriate enough, you also quote several stories from George Klein. And George worked with our television station here at the Memphis Public Library for many years doing a television program called Memphis Sounds. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, George, I like his, his memoir was great. There are a couple of other books Gladys and Elvis is, is, is a really, really great book about he and his mom. And then his cousin, uh, Billy Smith, has a really great memoir. So, you know, there's a lot out there. Not all of it is still in print. But my goal was to cast as wide a net as possible to not only tell the stories behind each of the songs, but to tell stories about Elvis's Christmas rituals and his memories and the gifts he gave and the gifts he got. And even things like for, you know, big Elvis fans, they know that it was an annual tradition at Graceland to have a very dangerous, very illegal fireworks fight. So he would go across the border to Mississippi and buy the equivalent of like $16,000 worth of fireworks. Oh, gracious. And he and his cousins, yeah, they would just shoot like Roman candles and buzz bombs at one another for years. And, you know, one year the hen house exploded and, you know, another year the carport caught on fire and 
you know, as it progressed, the cousins got more and more savvy. So, like, they would show up Christmas Eve in, like, flight suits with their wrists duct taped to gloves so they didn't have much skin exposure. So it was it was wild. Well, you know, back in the days, they really knew how to celebrate the holiday. <laughs> they They did. They did. It's really amazing people weren't more hurt. Um, you know, there was one uh, guy who worked for Elvis who got hit and had his goggles melted to his face. But that was it. He recovered. It seemed to not be as bad. But it could have been so much worse. Before Elvis made his first Christmas album, he had only been signed to RCA for less than two years. It seems that's pretty early in her career to already put out a Christmas album. Well, if you look at his output, not really. Like he was, you know, pumping out a lot of material and Christmas records were just part of the machinery of the recording industry. And so it made a lot of sense. I'm not sure he really wanted to do it. You know, he was sort of assigned some of these songs uh, and they weren't really prepared to do it because that first Christmas record, they just really, they didn't rerun, they repressed some of his gospel stuff. So half the record is secular, half of it is gospel, which did not please some of the critics. But you have, you know, Christmas traditional sort of songs. You have uh, White Christmas, which, um, uh, you know, Bing Crosby may not have been a fan of. But then you also have Blue Christmas. And then really, really uh, great songs like Santa Claus is Back in Town from Lieber and Stroller, which was recorded, like written and recorded like in the same hour. You know, the, the, these guys showed up, you know, in October of 1957, and they had no idea that the colonel had basically expected them to have a Christmas song ready, and they didn't. So they just went in, like, this little back room, and depending on, you know, who you talk to, either Stoller or Lieber, you know, it took between 8 or 15 minutes to write. Uh, and it's a great, great song. It's a very kind of spicy Christmas record. That's a lot of the music critics of the time did not appreciate its kind of earthiness. No, no, no. And again, it was unexpected. You know, uh, DJ Fontana, you know, he said, you know, at first, quote, people were shocked. And he was a little bit of his time, especially in the rock and roll style Christmas things he did. The critics were just not accustomed to having, you know, this sort of suggestive song about coming down your chimney and hanging up stockings next to Silent Night. And I believe in a little town of Bethlehem. So it was unusual for that kind of record to come out, uh, but it was groundbreaking. Well, there's been a, a tradition of saucy Christmas songs, especially by jump blues and R&B artists over the years. I remember this Butterbeans and Susie had a Let Me Trim Your Tree, something along those lines. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but at the time, I think it was the clash of styles that, that people just weren't really prepared for. In fact, there's, there's a guy, Dick Whittinghill, he was a DJ at KMPC in Los Angeles, that, you know, despite getting requests for the record, he just put his foot down and he said, you know, it's like having Tempest Storm give Christmas gifts to my kids. And for those of you who don't know, Tempest Storm was known as the queen of exotic dancers. So it was a real affront to some people's sensibilities in 1957. But let's not pretend that these mainstream music critics loved Elvis before this. No, no. I mean, there was a ton of criticism already, uh, you know, and one critic, you know, goes, you know, not only after his music, but they also go after like his complexion, you know, like some of them are not very nice to him. But again, he proved them all wrong. Now, how much of a crush was it to get a bunch of material recorded before he went off to the army in Germany? I mean, that that was a huge deal because, you know, the photos that you often see of Elvis 
in front of a Christmas tree. You know, there's some famous black and white ones that the local Memphis paper took. And you see him with a piece of paper in his hand. And that piece of paper is his draft notice. So he was about ready to have a movie come out. He was, you know, rushing to get all of this material out because, you know, love him or hate him. One thing that his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, was good at doing was anticipating the hunger for the music. So there was a giant push. And I think he even got one delay before he went into the army so he could record enough material that would cover the time that he would be away. Was there any information available on Elvis's Christmas time when he was stationed over in Germany? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Peter Gralnick wrote about it. And there's a couple of really great books, actually, about Elvis's time in the service there. You know, he was over in Germany for most of it. And, you know, he had a house that he was off base with, with his dad for a, a lot of it. You know, he recorded not a lot there. There's actually one really great story around Christmas Day in 1958, and this is from Peter Gralnick's biography. One of his fellow soldiers began singing Christmas songs and you know, was accompanying himself on a guitar. After a little bit, Elvis, who was sort of subdued, and this was right after his mom died, so he was particularly vulnerable and lonely, he began singing Silent Night, and the room just went quiet. One of the guys in his platoon, this guy named Sergeant Ira Jones, he said, those going on past didn't interrupt him. They simply walked by silently, touched his shoulder, and walked out the door. Not another word was spoken after the song until Elvis broke the spell. So, you know, he wished everybody a Merry Christmas, and then he departed for Hotel Grunwald, where he was celebrating the holidays with his dad. So, And how were his Christmases once he got back to the States? You know, it was much the same, fireworks fights. You know, one of the reasons he loved Christmas was it was the time he had cordoned off. So there was no recording sessions. He didn't have to travel. He didn't have to re perform. So that Christmas week was always dedicated to Christmas and family and gospel tunes around the piano. So it was a really uh, a cherished time for him. It was really interesting. You have a gallery of Christmas cards that Elvis sent out over the years, and he wasn't the only person credited on these cards. Uh, yeah, I don't think Elvis sent them. I think that, you know, I think the colonel sent them. And, you know, it was not just to fans, but it was also to radio stations and whatnot. And, it, you know, it was sort of a business. And, you know, one of the first ones is Elvis in uniform, you know, sort of waving. And it says, holiday greetings to you all from Elvis and the colonel. And the colonel did this for years and years and years in pre-Photoshop, sort of spliced himself together uh, with Elvis. There's a famous one sort of late in Elvis's career in the 70s where he's in that like white jumpsuit with the phoenix on his chest, flanked by two St. Bernards in front of a giant white Christmas tree. And uh, the colonel dressed as Santa, you know, just to his left. And it just says, you know, season's greeting, Elvis and the colonel and friends. So I have no idea who those dogs are. But, you know, this was a Christmas tradition and he did it for years and years. You have a page or two dedicated to each song on both of the albums in the recording process. Were you able to talk to anybody firsthand that were in those, or were all these all kind of other sources that you're taking from? So almost everybody's dead, so I'm relying on archival sources. I would have loved to talk to Priscilla and, and those folks, but, you know, strangely enough, pandemic Everybody was kind of locked down. But uh, again, so much research has been done that I was able to comb through all of these books and all of these sources and newspaper clippings and, you know, fan club magazines. And it was amazing how much there was. So I, I got really lucky. 
Well, in addition to all the great stories and editorial content that you have in it, it's just a fabulous looking package as well. When you look at it on the outside, it's very reminiscent of the little golden books from when we were kids. Yeah, isn't it great? Yeah, no, they, they, the Running Books did a, a really, really great job in designing it. Chris King is this uh, amazing illustrator. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And yeah, that spine, which is sort of meant to be golden made, really does look like golden books. Toward the end of the book, you have some recipes and cocktail recipes. What was the rationale for having those included in this book? The rationale was my editor told me I had to. Okay. So (laughs) the idea for the book was to not only sort of create this official chronicle of all of Elvis's Christmas traditions and, you know, the stories behind all of his holiday music, but also to make it sort of like a party gift and, and to sort of craft a party that Elvis himself would love. But there are not that many recipes, you know, left behind that Elvis had affection for. You know, there's the fried peanut butter banana sandwich, which is not particularly festive. We know he loved pecan pie. We know that he did not drink that much. In fact, there's a story in the book about his dad told about uh, Elvis getting drunk on peach schnapps, which basically put him off of alcohol for years and years and years. So what I did was I added a little personal touch, and all of the cookie recipes are actually my grandmother's cookie recipes. (laughs) Um, And all I did was rename them with Elvis songs. So there's the, you know, hunk of hunk of burning Christmas holiday monster cookies, which, you know, she sent me in college. So it was a way to sort of, you know, introduce Elvis fans to my family traditions as well. So was that your maternal grandmother or your paternal grandmother? My maternal grandmother, yeah, yeah. And by the way, she loved Roy Orbison. She was not really an Elvis fan. She, she loved Roy Orbison and she loved Liberace. So I think she would still give me a pass here because it's a chance <laughs> to share her love of baking and, and Christmas with other people. Well, at least you've got a rockabilly and some very ornate suits that, you know, put them together and you kind of have Elvis. You kind of do. There, There is a sort of love child of Liberace and Roy Orbison equals Elvis. You're right there. Let's talk about the Christmas special that wasn't. The 68 comeback special ostensibly was supposed to be a Christmas special. How did it turn into his big comeback statement? So you're right. In 1968, you know, Colonel Tom Parker envisioned this as a Christmas special. And this was at a time in the 60s where those sort of specials were a staple of television programming. So you had, you know, Andy Williams and Perry Como and Bob Hope and and Judy Garland had their own Christmas specials. But they were kind of passe even back then. And Elvis had not really been in mainstream spotlight. You know, he was in movies, but those soundtracks were not exactly his top musical form. And he had been eclipsed by the Beatles. You know, he was not the sex symbol of rock anymore. You know, that was Jim Morrison and Mick Jagger. And so the Colonel was sort of pushing this forward and he had gotten... A sponsorship by Singer. So the, the Singer Sewing Company, the folks that make sewing machines. So it's not exactly the, the sexiest sponsor, but Elvis was a little resentful. And in fact, again, his biographer, Peter Gronick said, Elvis felt angry and frustrated. You know, he felt like the colonel was turning him into a joke. But there was this young producer uh, and director, a guy named Steve Binder, who had had a real strong start, a really good track record with this uh, concert movie, the, the Tammy Show, a lot of folks might know. And he had worked on the Steve Allen Show, and he had shot people like, you know, the Stones and the Supremes and the Beach Boys and James Brown, and he wanted to give it a more live feel. And so Bender basically said, listen, this is not going to be some sort of hokey holiday show. What I want to do is kind of tell your sort of personal journey, have each of the numbers be a subliminal tale of your personal life. 
And then he said, quote, at the end of the day, viewers will really feel that they knew him as a compassionate and loving person, as well as a great singer and entertainer. And that sounded great to everyone but the colonel. And, you know, he kept insisting on Christmas themes and songs. And there was this huge behind the scenes fight for creative control. And in the end, it just became about control. And, and Binder said, quote, I don't think the colonel really cared whether the special was a Christmas show or not, or even if there was a Christmas song in it. All he wanted to do was keep his power over Elvis in front of people who he considered outsiders like me. But Bender ultimately sort of won. You know, you have not only great songs like If I Can Dream and Trouble. My personal favorite performance is Guitar Man. It's such a a great performance there. But you get like one and a half Christmas songs, you know, when they're in the boxing ring doing that sort of intimate little acoustic set with uh, DJ Fontana uh, and his original crew. He sings Blue Christmas and then Santa Claus is back in town, at least until, you know, Blue Christmas. I think he actually breaks down in the middle of Santa Claus is back in town. Bender won. And in fact, when the show was broadcast, only Blue Christmas made the cut. And then when it was rebroadcast in 1969, they took out Blue Christmas and added in Tiger Man. And it launched the next phase of his career. I mean, it was really, really amazing. And it led to him, you know, doing Vegas shows and, and, and being sort of in mainstream music again. The sad caveat to this was the colonel was so spiteful about its success despite him that he cut Bender off. So Bender never saw uh, Elvis again after that. I remember when I was in college in the late 80s, had grown up in the, the 70s and 80s, and our parents all had listened to Elvis and they replayed the comeback special for the first time on, I believe it was on NBC back in 88 mm-hmm. or 89. And it just blew our minds that this yeah. was not the Elvis that we were used to seeing in the movies and in his later performing years. Well, you know, I grew up with the young Elvis. So, you know, Elvis and I were only on the planet at the same time for about a year. So my mom, you know, grew up loving early Elvis. So, you know, 55, 56, 57. And so that is who I know and those, you know, set of Sun Records uh, straight onto RCA, that's my Elvis. But, you know, there's a whole group of other folks who know him from the movies and then from his Vegas shows. And it's really interesting how people's legacies live on. I'm always curious to see what the next generation of Elvis fans will be and how they will identify him. Because, you know, my wife, who's just a little older than I am, said, you know, when she grew up, Elvis was kind of a a joke. You know, he was not taken seriously. But there was this resurgence, I think, helped along by not only, you know, the TV shows that came out and the stamp, but, you know, Peter Goralnik's two mammoth biographies. I think that helped bring Elvis back into the popular consciousness. Now, one of the sad facts of most Christmas albums is that they're usually not recorded at Christmas time. And Elvis Sings the Wonderful World of Christmas was recorded in late May, so it was just pretty much summertime as they were getting this thing rolling. Yeah, and then I think the first record was recorded in like September. And you get stories of people recording this and trying to make the studios festive and have presents and whatnot. But they're in there sweating, <laughs> you know, trying to bring a little bit of that holiday cheer in. Yeah, it is, it is a artistic feat of bringing in the holiday spirit when it's 90 degrees outside. And it's a fairly subdued set of songs. It doesn't have some of that rollicking energy of the first album. It's almost all ballads, and maybe it's a little bit of blues in there. Yeah, the 1971 record, it's a little overlooked, and it is a little down-tempo, but there are a lot of uh, great songs in there still. 
although you have a couple of them that are just oddly placed on the album because on side B you get I'll Be Home on Christmas Day and then right after that you get another song called If I Get Home on Christmas Day. So there's a, li- <laughs> there's a little bit of dissonance, but you get songs like, you know, Merry Christmas, Baby, which is great. It's this sort of like swampy blues number. But when he was recording that session, one of the things that Elvis loved to do was riff. And there's a great sort of off the cuff version of Bob Dylan's Don't Think Twice, It's All Right that's thrown in. And that's been released a, a couple of different times. And you also get uh, renditions of Chris Christopherson's Help Me Make It Through the Night. So those recordings bore more fruit than just the Christmas songs. I was really surprised. One of the songs, you talk about the writing process of it, and it was a hash-fueled land speed record. I was really surprised EPE let you talk about this song being written on drugs. Again, the Elvis Presley estate and Elvis Presley Enterprises were so lovely and so supportive of it, the project in general. But I think they also wanted to reflect the reality and the scholarship out there. So so they are to be lauded for that. And one of the stories is, yeah, uh, I think we talked about it a little bit, is this uh, song written by Michael Jarrett called I'll Be Home on Christmas Day. I'll give a little background. So in 1969, Jarrett was going through this like personal crisis and, you know, he was working in nightclubs and he was just really, really burnt out. And so he was going to move to Los Angeles and he threw himself this going away party. And in the aftermath in the sort of the blast radius of this party, it just left his apartment just like in, in shambles. And, you know, he uh, was picking up afterward and was sort of, again, feeling sorry for himself and not feeling that great. The house was such a mess that he noticed that somebody had left like a huge chunk of gravel in his shag carpet. And it's like, no, wait, that's not gravel. And on closer inspection, it was Afghan hash. And so Jarrett remembered, he said, I was so glad to find something to help me have a little attitude adjustment. I was feeling so bad and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. So he made a little impromptu pipe out of a coat hanger and smoked the hash and started playing his guitar. And he said, quote, I picked it up and it was Christmas Eve and I wrote, I'll be home on Christmas Day in 10 minutes. He says it was life altering. The song was a gift. And so Elvis recorded it, you know, twice. Uh, He recorded other Jarrett songs. But yeah, the origin story of that particular song is a little drug-fueled, which is not the first rock and roll song to ever have a little bit of chemical influence in it. But it's interesting that it is a Christmas song. I know, but then when you transition into that Elvis meets Nixon to get his narcotics officer's badge, then it just, you know, puts the cherry on top for irony. It It, it is, it is. But, you know, and, and that's the other thing is that is also a Christmas story because, you know, one of the reasons he went to go meet Nixon was he had sort of stormed out of Graceland because uh, he had spent so much money on like guns and gifts and cars. I think it was over $100,000 that he just left. And he took like the only commercial flight of his life, ended up in Washington. And who but Elvis could send a note to the president and then end up with an audience with him. So that was, you know, Elvis's sort of Christmas gift to himself, that little bit of rebellion. Again, so ironic because you would think that they would be philosophically opposed. But Elvis, you know, had a little bit of delusion of grandeur and he, you know, suggested that he could go undercover and and help, you know, Nixon root out all the drugs that were ruining America. Even though I think if you looked at Elvis's filing cabinet, Nixon would have had plenty to talk about. So, of course, Elvis Presley was 
generous to a fault. Mm-hmm. What were some of the examples of Christmas presents he gave friends and uh, hangers-on over the years? So I have a whole section in that. You know, some of them were practical and very, like, thoughtful. So, like, in 1964, he bought a new wheelchair for Gary Pepper, who is one of Elvis's earliest fans and a president of his fan club. But he also bought, you know, cars. And, uh, you know, in 1966, he bought uh, a pair of horses for Priscilla and, and her friend Sandy. You know, he was famous for giving out just gift vouchers for Goldsmith's department store. Jerry Schilling and Barbara Lee each got Mercedes in 1970s. But it also proved that, you know, Elvis was really tough to buy for. Even though he could buy anything for himself, he still liked to get things. That gift from GK. Yeah, George Klein. I got him a couple different things. You know, George bought him this sort of rolling leather bookcase because uh, Elvis liked to have his books with him, especially on tour. So that was a very thoughtful gift. Priscilla gave him a slot car track, which he loved. George Klein also gave him this sort of starburst clock, which I actually just saw uh, a couple weeks ago at Graceland. It's still over the mantle in Graceland. But you also get things like, you know, in 1970, you know, that like fur cloth bell-bottom suit that he wore to Sonny West's wedding. Uh, you know, that that was a Christmas gift at, where he served as uh, his best man in uh, on December 28th. And then one of the, the last documented Christmas gifts was his girlfriend Ginger Alden bought him this large gold chain necklace that uh, it had a tiger's eye gemstone at the center of a crucifix. So, you know, people tried. He really loved getting that. But also, even people who didn't know him sent tons of gifts and, like, very specific gifts. His secretary, Becky Yancey, wrote that, you know, people would send dozens of shirts. And in the right size, they sent handkerchiefs and keychains and billfolds and cufflinks and gallons of shaving lotion. And one of the more sort of more affluent fans sent him a gold toothpick. And speaking of gifts, I think Christmas Elvis would make a fine gift, don't you? I'm hoping so, yeah. It's one of the reasons I liked taking this assignment is I think it's a gift that ages really well. It's perfect for the season. And I hope we sell it, you know, every year, four years. I'm really, really proud of it. It's the, it's one of the most beautiful books I've ever done. Well, and the big question now is, what's your favorite Elvis Christmas song? Without a doubt, it's it's Blue Christmas. Yes, I like the Ernest Tubbs version a ton. But, you know, Millie Kirkham, who was Nashville's on-call soprano in the background doing that silly, and we, again, we have uh, identified the beginning and end of my musical abilities with that (laughs) rendition. And again, it's got a great story behind it because Elvis didn't want to do it. You know, it was on the schedule that day. So September 5th, 1957, he had already done 15 takes of treat me nice and you know he tried to get my wish came true he tried for several hours and so by the time they got to blue christmas elvis was worn out he just didn't want to do it and so millie kirkham again who's the background vocalist said you know he told them he said turning to the backup singers you know let's just get it over with do anything have fun do something silly and that's exactly what kirkham did and you know that wooey woo background was perfect for the song and when they got through it, they just were all laughing. And she and, and uh, Millie said, well, you know, that's one record they will never release. But they did. And, you know, Kirkham's improvisational vocals on the back of that song became its obligato. You know, the, the obligato is that, that, that element of the song that cannot be separated from it. I, I, I give the example in the book is, um, you know, it's as, as inseparable as um, uh, Aretha Franklin's singer singing Sock It To Me behind Respect, you know. So I have such affection for that song. And and one of the things that Millie talks about is she's six months pregnant 
when she's singing that. And Elvis was very, you know, caring and make sure, you know, that she got a chair. But uh, Millie Kirkham and her daughter, Shelly, it's this sort of family joke uh, between the two of them. And Shelly said, well, maybe I was kicking you. You know, maybe that's why you were singing. <laughs> but uh, I, I love that song and I love that story. And the timeline's up. She would have been born just right around Christmas time. Yes. Yes. A miracle child. Another <laughs> miracle child. I just want to thank you so much for coming on today and sharing Elvis and Christmas with us. It's been such a, a pleasure, Rob. Stephen, thank you so much for having me. A, a, a real honor to be on the show. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Robert K. Elder is the author of Christmas with Elvis, the official guide to the holidays from the King of Rock and Roll, which is published by Running Press. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the city of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.